Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 89 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today's episode will be a special question and answer session with myself taking user questions that were submitted on Instagram and giving my best answer. So I always really enjoy uh, doing these. It's good to not only offer my two cents on a variety of topics, but also to see what people are interested in. Uh, there's generally a lot of trends, as there always is trends in the field. There's, there's pendulums that swing back and forth, and then there's new concepts and cutting-edge ideas that are springing up, uh, one of which is neurotyping. Uh, that was a pretty frequently asked question, so I'm, I'm certainly happy to offer my input on that. But today's Q&A, before I get into all the questions, just so you as a listener can kind of get an idea of an overview of what we'll be talking about, is uh, a little bit on plyometric setups, uh, a little bit on doing uh, split squats or squatting with a high degree of dorsiflexion and heels elevated, and a little bit on neurotyping as well, and training splits. Uh, overall, just a lot of really cool stuff and stuff I'm excited to talk about. So uh, let's dive right on into it. I go a really long time on some of these intros when I'm talking about someone else. I don't really like to spend a lot of time introducing myself. Uh, so uh, let's get right onto the questions. And the first one is Tylish. I probably pronounced that wrong, but I gave it my best shot. And the question is uh, on plyometric programming, either within a strength program or a, sec a separate block. Etc. So, what I'm assuming uh, that is, if you're doing plyometric program programming in a training uh, setup, should you have like a strength block for four or eight weeks, and then a plyometric block for four weeks, and so on and so forth. And so, I think the modern consensus is really uh, that of vertical integration. So, if you're going to use a training element, you're using a little bit of it in each training cycle or block maybe more, maybe less for some um, some cycles. So I'm never one for pure block periodization when it comes to plyometrics for the most part. Um, I think that that should always be in there in the context of uh, jumping and sprinting and lifting, of course. So you always want a little bit of each element, generally speaking. I, I do think that going kind of off the rails of lifting for a few weeks um, or, or even months uh, if you're a real elastic athlete and getting away from barbell work and just doing plyometrics for a while, I think that that can be fine. But uh, there's always a way to complement things with weights. And so generally, I'll, I'm always going to have something in each program. 
So I hope that answers your question. Obviously, we can really dig into that. And so stay stay tuned as well because I'll chat a little bit about training setups and those types of things where plyometrics and weights work together. It's a, it's a question age old in the uh, sports performance world. You, you probably may have uh, seen like the, the old Russian manuals with a huge strength overtraining block and then people come off of that and then they're starting to do plyometrics. I, I always felt like that was a really difficult uh, thing to pull off well. Uh, it was seemed It's always seemed a lot less risky to me to just do things that work really well all along rather than uh, beating an athlete down and then telling them that gains are to come. <laughs> uh, not that that can't work. I've just never really uh, liked that compared to uh, doing some more vertical integration, having in everything in there and uh, moving it uh, forward as, as the training progresses. So a uh, second question was urban skill fitness, and it was on the role of biarticular muscles. I've heard multiple reasons, but would like another view on it. So this is a good one. Uh, back to the uh, episode with Bas Van Huren. Uh, he talked about this a little bit and highlighted some research on, and so this would be the first definition of biarticular muscle. It crosses two joints. Your big ones are going to be the hamstrings, the rectus femoris, and the quads, which is the, like the long little skinny one. And then you got the gastrocnemius calf muscle and that connects the uh, bottom of the femurs to the uh, calcaneus. So that crosses those joints. And their role is more so than force production is energy transport. So if you're sprinting, they how they're uh, you think of them as ropes almost. It's almost like they they can keep the shin moving at less cost. Uh, the shin and the hip they attach the shin to the hip, and by uh, strategic manipulation they can kind of uh, create a position for the body that's more economical than having to use muscle force uh, for for the same purpose. I'm probably making that really complicated, but at the end of the day, they're efficient. They're very tendinous. They have a steep penation angle. Um, so they're very good at high torque, stiff energy transfer between joints. And so if you're training like a normal person, or if you're just playing sport, playing sports and then doing a few full body lifts, like a trap bar deadlift and pull-ups or presses, and maybe some Olympic lifts, you really have nothing to worry about in terms of training those muscles. It'll take care of itself. It's not worth overthinking. Um, if you train like a pure bodybuilder and just do leg extensions and leg curls and, and calf raises, and that's all you're training, um, then you can run into a problem because in doing that, you're training the muscles for that single joint job instead of an energy transport job. And if that makes up enough of your training, you actually will lose coordination and you'll have to get it back over time. And a good story I remember reading this when I was in college was a high jumper and this high jumper it was like I got hurt or something and so I did a ton of leg extensions and I piled on the weight and when I went back to squatting and jumping I found that my squat was pretty darn good but I couldn't high jump for anything and it took me uh, a few months to get my high jump back uh, after ditching the leg extensions and just kind of just kind of jumping not even lifting I think but if you train like a bodybuilder basically you you will uh, turn those biarticular muscles that span two joints into really monoarticular. They'll lose their energy transporting abilities, and they will become uh, more like single joint action uh, muscles because that's the job you're. They're going to adapt to the job you're, job you are giving them in training. So hopefully that answers your question there. Uh, it's a good one. I think that uh, obviously we we know that functional training, uh, ground based training, you know, training that. Uh, harnesses the power of multiple joints and sequences in some manner that that allows energy transport 
is the best rather than isolation work, which is probably only best used for weakness building at best when we do use it for athletes or, or specifically honing in on some weak points. So uh, next one is Power Athletics Gym Training. Uh, says, I really like the episode with Christian Thibodeau. He is one of my early influencers and I read every book he wrote. Regarding neurotyping, I would like to know if and how you assess an athlete's neurotype. And that uh, question also got four likes. So I think a lot of people are wanting to know what's going on with the neurotyping ever since I did that episode. And to be completely honest, I was using neurotyping even before I recorded that episode. I I listened to an old or maybe a new one, I should say a new Christian Thibodeau episode on Robbie Burke's podcast where Christian really went through his neurotyping system. Even before that, I had read The Edge Effect, uh, Eric Braverman, I had read old Charles Poliquin's Five Elements stuff. So I was really into all the neurotransmitters even before all that. And I was making athletes do Braverman surveys and trying to see what they were and kind of guessing and and trying to harness that the best I could. But at the end of the day, there was a lot of things that really weren't clear in all that. Um, and one of the biggest ones was uh, not so much being dominant in a neurotransmitter, like you have a lot of it, but you actually don't have a lot of that neurotransmitter and you want to do things that bring up that neurotransmitter. So if you're low in dopamine, you want to do things that increase your dopamine storage. And uh, anyways, long story short, I, I when I listened to Christian on Robbie's podcast, that was probably two months, three months before I actually got him on my show. Um, I, I like all these connections all of a sudden, like just started going on in my brain. And I was like, whoa, this is like, I, I was so excited listening to that episode. That was one of the best podcasts I had ever heard. And all these things were coming together. And so I started going to Christian's blog on Thib Army uh, and then pretty much seeing everything that he had on the topic. And I started aligning my athletes training programs as per his writings. And it made a really big difference. And so also I'm, um, I'm also taking his uh, online course on it to, for certification, which is also excellent. And uh, one, so the main things I do, I, I definitely do neurotyping. I'm actually completely reorganizing uh, my online training categories. They already like this anyways. Like I'd have programs that I was like, oh yeah, this is a 1B program because, well, I'm a 1B and I write a lot of programs how I would like it, but I'm, I'm starting to go down the line and have basic training templates for each of the neurotypes and trying to convert some of that over from more of a strength focus, uh, a strength sport focus to say jumping or sprinting focus and, and, and kind of putting some traditional track and field based or uh, plyometric or speed based templates into those. And it's been awesome. It's actually something that I'm really excited about in moving forward. Um, I've also done it with uh, my swim, my swim team, swim athletes, swim postgrads. I've seen some athletes who I was, I was training like a two A, like a more neural athlete. And I found uh, through the neurotyping, I was like, you know what? I think this athlete's actually more like a two B, maybe even a three. They don't have a very strong nervous system. I'm blowing up their nervous system by not training them that way. Put them in a group that is focused on a little bit more on higher reps, lighter weight, more like a distance uh, swimmers workout. And those athletes got a lot better. Like they were swimming amazingly well. And obviously, you know, I'm never going to say it was the weight room, but the athletes did feel like it was helping them tremendously, the change of the workout. And ultimately, if you're a strength coach, it's all about preparing your athletes to be the best in their sport, not seeing a one rep max or those types of things. 
And, but to be completely honest, those athletes were actually still lifting pretty good weights when they needed to, or, or those few times where I would let them loose a little bit, they had great strength. But when you hit the neurotype, good things happen. You aren't spiking cortisol and you're allowing their whole system to be very strong. So long story short, I use it. I love it. It's uh, I'm still trying to finish the course and I'm also trying to finish another book. So that's why I've been a little bit slow to it. But, uh, in terms of what Christian's doing, I, I can't think of, uh, anything that someone is doing that is more be- uh, good and relevant right now uh, to helping athletes be at their best and helping all the athletes be at their best. Cause we can all, uh, I mean, if you're uh, like, like me, I was track and field jumper. And so if I'm coaching track jumps or something and I, I'm going to write a program that probably hits the majority of neurotypes, but there might be a few outliers. And so it helps you if you're a specific coach to really hit those outliers or those swimmers I was talking about um, or obviously if you're a team sport coach, it's even more important because you're going to have more of a spectrum within a basketball or volleyball or football team. So I think it's awesome stuff and I'm excited to finish the course and, and write up a review on the topic. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. So, uh, next one is, uh, Walter L Copas easy to implement or coach activities to improve power in field sports. So, I this is one question that I feel like maybe runs a little bit along those you'd call it like the sports specific uh, world like I want to I want a program for this sport and so one thing that I think is important to realize is that the human body the nervous system has no idea what sport you're training for it just knows force and power and it knows joints and physics and and it knows sensation and so it, I don't really I'm not really much of a sports specific person i i do think that uh, within buy-in for the athlete is it is important in many cases if you have a tennis player they want to think that they're on a tennis specific program in many cases i mean and there's changes you make between sports if it's an upper extremity lower extremity a, a sport of repetition or if it's a a sport with a lot more different movements and variabilities in it so obviously there's there's some things you definitely need to look at there but in terms of uh, easy to implement coach activities, it really doesn't get any simpler than very basic weightlifting, trap bar deadlift, squat, Bulgarian split squat, some Olympic movements, uh, and then simple power activities, plyometrics, med ball throws, and then learning to use your body and joints properly with the right running uh, and movement technique that's been beaten out of a lot of us by the common cues of everything being straight ahead front to back 90 degree angles (laughs) i see it a lot and uh, it makes people slower also just simply setting aside time in practice to where where a team sport or a field sport athlete is a very aerobic um a lactic aerobic a sorry i keep butchering this aerobic a lactic event so uh, aerobic light jogging followed up by bursts of sprinting and then jogging recoveries again um, the team sports don't really get into that point that often where it's full recovery, you know, total rest for say two to two to five minutes and then do a flat out competitive sprint and then rest and do that flat out sprint again. But that's, um, that's going to get that extra, like kind of 5% of muscle fibers firing and engaged. And so setting t- aside time to competitively race people, uh, where you're getting just maybe into that early speed endurance. So no more than. Uh, So like that 50 to 80 meter, uh, just doing that a few times or obviously standard acceleration being a lot more pertinent for team sport. I think they're both good for team sport because they both have different uh, purposes and utilities, but doing 
those activities on complete rest, complete recovery, uh, compete, race, do it from different starting positions. Uh, you could say the same thing for plyometrics, but it doesn't have to be fancy. Just get strong uh, appropriately and incorporating the main leg movers, not get your back strong by lifting in a hyperextended position and just trying to smash that squat max. <laughs> um, but being smart and smart about a good well-rounded strength program, race people, uh, do good plyometric work. It's it's pretty uh, pretty simple. Okay, uh, next one. Uh, Cian O'Brien, um, or Chan, I, it's C-I-A-N, and I'm terrible at reading names. I really am sorry. I probably butchered that, but uh, this is a great question. Is uh, seeing more split squat variations these days with the knee passing as far in front of the toes as possible and some aggressive angle decline squats with load. So um, by that, I think you mean the where your your heels are on a your feet are on a slant board and your toes are are angled down towards the ground, um, and the knees are obviously going to shoot way out forward in that situation. Uh, thoughts on these, and if you could point us in the direction of research, ATG coaches use them a lot, uh, such as ATG Ben Patrick on Instagram that also had four likes, and uh, another person Jones Jeff asked a similar question so that's cool to see people are seeing this this is uh wanting the opinion uh i, I love it i think it's awesome i think the stuff the atg guys do is, is really cool really smart training uh intense training and i think people it seems like people are getting awesome results so i don't doubt it at all i also uh, a friend of mine dunker uh, nico uh, nico christie had mentioned that doing that type of work actually completely eliminated his knee issues and he's had knee issues for a while i've known him for a while and I'm like, well, you know what? Anything that helps that out, I, I think I can see that. I could be on board with it. But okay, so I can't point you in the direction of research. To be honest, I don't sit there going through research much at all unless I absolutely have to or someone passes me a really cool study or I saw a cool study on social media. Generally, I'm not, I'm, I'm only as evidence-based as I absolutely need to be. If I know something got someone faster, helped them jump higher, stay more injury-free, it seemed, um, then I'm just gonna I'm gonna go with my gut. That's the type of person I am. I'm not a, a research needs to validate this type of person, um, but I, I do see the need for that with especially um, how a lot of people are wired. But and and it is good. It's it's good that there's this body of research based evidence. Anyways, uh, so uh, what what I think is um, what I can direct you towards there. I can at least talk from like a physiology point. So doing that work has a few advantages. Uh, and, and I like it more for knee stuff way more than like doing the TKEs. I don't know how much that stuff does, but, uh, because a lot of injury, uh, injuries or even pain is actually found in the fascia and fascial trains way more than you would think. Pain is not in the muscle pains in the fascia injuries are often in the fascia and doing full range of motion work like that is going to ex uh, give that fascia extensibility and strengthen that extensibility. So if you want to help yourself out, it's kind of like loaded stretching in a sense, which loaded stretching under time also can re-angulate um, or, or that collagen matrix of the fascia can get all like crisscrossed and weavy and jagged and lousy. And when you're doing like these this weighted stretching, which is putting that fascia in extended and loaded position, you're actually, um, uh, you're almost pulling it into a straight line. So you're really upgrading your fascia. That's what I think the main benefit of that stuff is. I think it's awesome. I think those guys are doing a good job. Um, I don't do that stuff specifically. I, I do more of the J Schrader extreme isos, weighted stretching holds, those types of things for that purpose. It's kind of the same thing, um, but I wouldn't hesitate to use it. And honestly, I probably should sometime. So 
uh no i think it's cool i would definitely jump on that train uh it's one of the worst evils man in strength and conditioning as well as track and field is the 90 degree angle world right so keep your knees over your toes and sit your hips back and all that stuff i you don't believe it for a second uh, you need to get in these positions that are kind of branded as uncomfortable and if you load it progressively it's going to turn out well for you uh, so i mean you obviously wouldn't want to go zero to 100 in one day just starting at an appropriate level and working your way up you're going to be just fine i think it's awesome stuff so uh, kudos to them and uh, it's great training great training method okay here's a question that i was pretty excited about clay odell says what is the best training split for jumpers in track and field uh, I do legs on Monday, Thursday, and I do my running, jumping, and plyos on Tuesday, Friday. I'd like to know your input and recommendations. So, uh, Clay, this is a question that is a little dependent on your neurotype, uh, for one, and I'm assuming if it's working for you, uh, well, there's a few stipulations, so this could be a huge, huge answer. Um, I'm trying to going to try to keep it as, as concise and relevant as I can. So first, a little bit depends on your neurotype. If you're a very neural athlete, so in Christian's 1A, 1B, you're neural driven, you can use potentiation really well, um, then this could be a great training uh, program for you. And the reason being is because the weights will potentiate the plyometric work and the speed work the next day, and then you get a day off and then you do it over again. And so this was actually uh, when I was in college and a little bit after I was I was kind of of the opinion of okay you should either go Tuesday like Monday Thursday hit it really hard um, or Monday Wednesday Friday uh, like kind of a typical like high low Charlie Francis type setup and I, I got the the Monday Thursday like two day a week like heavy hit lifting heavy plyo type idea from really all this stuff uh, back in the day like InnoSport and and this book the science of jumping which both really good things don't get me wrong. Um, but my idea was you got to hit it really hard, like really hard, and then rest a long time, and then come back and hit it really hard and rest a long time. And the biggest, one of the biggest paradigms in my own training was breaking out of that and being like, okay, you know what? I can train neural like four times a week, or I can even train neuro six times a week and be fine. Um, the Bulgarians definitely did that and then some, and those guys had as, were as neural training as you can get, lifting heavy weights almost around the clock, nothing high reps, nothing higher than I think threes. And so it was all neuro stuff, but they never did enough to crash out their dopamine. And so that's the key is the, the training split, the magic of it is that what are you doing on those leg days? So if those leg days are uh, you know, like, like five sets of 10 squats, deep squats, you're probably gonna fry out yourself a little bit for the plyometrics the next day and the sprinting, which is the important thing. But just doing things at an appropriate level, especially that Monday, Thursday, you'll really set yourself up good to have a good Thursday, Friday, which that's what's, what it's all about, is the good jumping and the good plyos and the good sprinting and uh, doing that over. No, I think that's that's good stuff. Um, when I was doing that back in the day, I would, that, and that's like the one of the programs, it was like the Christmas program because I just wrote it at Christmas time. And that was like eight years ago. It seems like forever, but it was Similar, it was uh, lifting on Monday, Thursday, some cleans, some squats, some calf raises, some jump squats, and then a lot of bounding and hurdle hops on the Thursday and Fridays. And that worked really well for a lot of people. I had someone even say, hey, after two, three weeks of this, I improved my single leg jump like six inches. <laughs> and uh, it's a, that's what happens when you train for your neurotype. If you're an elastic athlete, um, getting out of that like three-day lifting split is one of the best things you could ever do. 
because uh, a lot of times you don't need to be really lifting more than twice a week or you're going to start messing up that balance of that muscle fascia tune. And so, yeah, for a jumper, I think that's where it's at. You just how often a deload's important. Uh, when I was doing I was hitting it really hard for two weeks and then taking a deload week. Uh, but there's different things you can do. I think you can go three weeks depending on how you progress. And you can get into it a lot of ways, but I really like that split for jumpers. I think it's an awesome one. Um, I don't necessarily do it year-round or when I was coaching track full-time. I didn't necessarily do it year-round, but when I was in what I would call SPP, we always did that type of work, and we had some people get really fast and really explosive. I remember even a pole vaulter who I just trained with the jumpers on that split. Um, he was a senior, and I remember he was going down the runway one day with the pole vault coach who had worked with him in years past, and it's like, man, he's faster than he's ever been. Like, this is crazy, and he was getting up over big bars. and But once he got to competition, he freaked out a little bit. He was a little bit of a type three tendencies, but in practice, he was crushing, running fast. And uh, we didn't even do a lot of sprinting. It was just that and bounding and plyos, and he was still really fast. And so maybe that hits on that Jay Schrader uh, idea a little bit of just stimulating the nervous system maximally, and it'll rub off in your sport skills. Obviously, you do want to sprint if sprinting is your sport, but if you hit your neurotype right and hit the training right, you're going to have some good results. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Okay, next question is uh, Mihalovsky uh, Darko. Yes, I gave it my best attempt there. How to improve ankle mobility for better vertical jumping. Uh, and also, <clears throat> so that's the first one. He actually asked two questions. So that one got two likes. It does seem like the whole um, like knees forward, ankle mobility, those types of things seem to be pretty popular. So for better vertical jumping, uh, I'll keep this simple is, is don't statically stretch your ankles. It's one of the worst things you could ever do. Like, uh, <laughs> like imagine your Achilles tendon is like this super powerful rubber band. And so imagine if you had like just this insanely powerful rubber band that was very responsible for your jumping and sprinting and your locomotion in general. And you just took that rubber band and you just, you know, set it, you set it across two bars and let it stretch all the time. Well, eventually it's going to lose its elasticity a little bit. And so, but what you want to do instead, if you're trying to get more mobile ankles is uh, dynamic uh, weighted stretching could be one like loaded, like calf raises where you're uh, going to the bottom and holding it for a few seconds and then exploding back up. So the Achilles is lengthened under load and not statically and passively where it can just, if it's passive, it's going to adapt to being passive. But if you can load it on or load it under weight, then it's going to respond better because it's has high tension. So, uh, if you're looking for any sort of mobility, I would look at that. Um, going back to what Cody Plofker was talking about in a recent episode, you do want to decide if your ankles are, um, restricted because of something in the joint itself. So is it a joint issue? Or is it something that's more upstream? So if it's a joint issue, when you go to squat, like he'll say, you'll feel it in the ankle joint itself, in those bones of the ankle, like there's a block there. Uh, but if it's not, if you feel like in your calves, a lot of times it's actually a pelvic posture thing that's happening upstream. If you have a lot of anterior pelvic tilt, uh, that, uh, that actually can really hurt your ability to squat down appropriately. And so uh, basically doing good uh, breathing drills, such as PRI breathing drills regularly, to find a more less or less extended position. You can combine that with doing, I like uh, Chris Corfitt's rocker jumps, which is basically ankle dorsiflexion loading uh, ballistically and then jumping. And to do those rocker jumps too, you put your hands on your hips and you keep your hips in neutral. 
you can let those knees go forward uh, and that's a good just dynamic way to have active mobility and people seem to report uh, big vertical jump increases using that those uh, progressions that Chris came up with and I definitely believe it I think it's I think it's great stuff so um, yeah that would be my best advice is don't static stretch do maybe weighted type stretching holds do rocker jumps and uh, you can also uh, the squat type the squat type movement that the uh, athletic truth uh, the ATG guys do I think is good as well so hope that answers your question there and then uh, also second question was uh, anything on how throwers especially shot putters get so explosive they display tremendous jumping abilities even though they're significantly heavier than other track and team sport athletes yeah so I think that's cool I love track and field I love uh, just track related training uh, you think of a thrower usually it's going to be uh, a highly neural athlete uh, so someone who's more of a bodybuilder type person isn't predisposed to throwing your, these are like the high, these are like the Olympic weightlifters of track and field in a sense. These are really explosive neural guys. And so they're doing two things that are really helping them out that are, um, that are really getting their nervous system crackling is they're lifting heavier explosive weights for the most part, uh, unless they are on the, uh, the bonder check program and they don't really go over uh 60 70 or 80 percent i'm not exactly sure so i'm not going to throw a quote down uh but the, his is a little bit more specialized but generally speaking most throws programs you're getting guys lifting pretty heavy weights or fast weights or a combination of and then they're moving fast and very explosively in the ring and so you put those things together and you're going to get they, they those two things complement each other you hear about people who uh you know hit hang snatch prs and they hadn't done the lift but they just been doing a ton of like hammer throws and each movement complements the other so you just get this great explosive duo it's kind of like um you know basketball season and track season in a sense it's it's things that really uh really can stimulate the nervous system and i would imagine that uh, without without throwing maximally the those throws weights weight lifting wouldn't be as good and without the weightlifting, maybe their throws wouldn't be, or their throws wouldn't be quite as good. So it's just complementary nature. A neural athlete, neural athletes like to lift heavy. They like to throw. They like to jump. They like to sprint, and they like to do that uh, in fresh circumstances. So uh, if you've ever seen throwers practice, they're not just rattling off throw after throw. They're throwing, and then they take quite a bit of time, relax, and then they do the next one. Everything's as high quality as as uh, high quality effort as you can get. Next question. Uh, so. Chris uh, Nicolo, 61. I recently competed in the Arnold in the Power X Nationals, which is an event where you perform three lifts, power clean, bench press, and trap bar deadlift for a 20 rep max. Uh, that said, I'm a power lifter. I've used many different periodization routines, set, re set rep schemes, etc. There's nothing out there uh, to program in a training cycle to increase a 20 rep max. So I tried training sets of 20 reps on everything and actually lost a lot of strength, and the lifts I was doing did not increase at all. What happened? I could perform more volume with a given weight for the 20 reps, but at 20 reps, it was like hitting a wall every time. How would you train your programming for this type of event? Goal uh, was to add 20 pounds to the 20 rep max in eight weeks. Okay, awesome question, because I think that this um, there's a lot of parallels. And so I can tell you uh, there's a similar story in like track and field decathletes. You get stories of guys quite often track and field decathletes guys who are 1a 1b maybe occasionally 2a but th this would be a, something that would really happen for like the type ones uh, and by that i mean highly neural athlete they're much more nervous system oriented than muscular they have a very high capacity uh to do nervous system intensive things jumping and throwing and hurdling 
Uh, and then there'll be these stories of these guys who barely do any training for the 1500 whatsoever, maybe do a little bit of 400 meter base training, but they don't really train for the 1500, which is a four minute event, a little bit longer than 20 reps in a lift, but they can run a really darn good time. And they did it without really having to train for it, quote unquote, so much. Uh, so long story short, if you're a more neural athlete and you're training sets of 20, you're training against your nature. And so what's going to happen there is cortisol is going to go up. Uh, you're going to have a lot of anxiety around that, maybe subconscious. I mean, you know, even like me, I'm a neural athlete and I love a good challenging set of 20, but I've done one by 20 workouts that combined with a little bit of life stress really flatlined me, crashed my dopamine for a few days and it took me a while to get it back. So, um, ultimately most of your training should center on what makes you strong, uh, what gets up your wonder at max and then a very small amount of occasionally doing something that maybe goes up to the 12 to 15 rep range and then leave the 20 for the competition. That's to me, that's, um, my best advice. I think that training, you don't want to train, uh, think about it this way too. Like that set of 20 for you is poison. So you want to have as little of that poison as your system in your training as possible. When you compete, you're going to get it. But when you train, you just got to train and you got to do what improves that one rep max and then kind of let everything else take care of itself. So good question. It's good to kind of think about that and see that in a different light too. I, I guess I could talk about, you know, the one by 20 program too, uh, which I think is, I, I use that a lot for my team sport athletes uh, quite extensively and especially type two athletes, I think get a lot out of it. Uh, the more type one you are, I think you still can, but if you're, if you're really getting specific and you're really advanced, um, then I, I think it can have some uh, shortcomings, which obviously you had there a little bit in your own training program. Okay, uh, next is uh, Pablo uh, Barachina. I hope I said that right. How much variation in exercises for jump training? Okay, so it totally depends on who you are as an athlete. Uh, people who are a little bit more, I guess you call them serotonin dominant, if you will, Christian Thibodeau's type three, uh, very precision-based people. Uh, and, and in all honesty, they don't need to vary that much. Okay, so I've had type three athletes I've worked with who actually have said they did the best on an air alert type training program, which is the same thing over and over again, with just higher reps for a period of time. Um, and it's very, it's very monotonous that the program like that, I'll do okay for it on two weeks and then I'll start jumping lower and my knees hurt. So, uh, but if you are like me or a lot of jumpers, people who are like track jumpers, usually you want a good amount of variation. I mean, for me, like I like to do two different jump workouts and two different sprint workouts a week in many cases, and I'll do a different set of jumps and a different sp set of sprints each day. Uh, I guess the, the thing to think about is how long do you want to spend uh, using a training uh, stimulus before you uh, drop it out of the program or pick something else? And <clears throat> I think it, it really is totally different for a lot of people. Uh, to give you a simple answer, uh, if you're jump training, I mean, the best jump train there is that has variation to it is dunk training because there's lots of different dunks you can do. Like just even throwing an alley-oop uh, to yourself, like off the bounce, every dunk is going to be just a little bit different, which is really cool. Like compare that to, I guess, high jump training or something where you're doing the exact same jump over and over and over again. That can be a little bit more exhausting than dunk training where there's different types, there's different angles, there's different ways you stress the joints and the fascia. And, uh, it's just little, just little nuances in how muscles are activated. So, uh, just doing like a dunking type training 
uh, almost has enough variety in it as it is. And you know, keeping things simple, I would just I would generally have maybe four plyometric type drills in a program, two to four at any given time. And some people will need, want to change those every three weeks. Some people can do them for eight weeks. So in the three to eight week window, what are you getting sick of? Are you getting sick of them? Do you want to switch? That's fine. Plyometrics are auxiliary. They're they are not the end game. So you can switch those around more often. That's kind of how I drew up the vertical ignition program a little bit. Uh, and if you are into the neurotypes, you can tell that it was a 1B that wrote vertical ignition. <laughs> um, but uh, that's I do think that's a good practice because no plyometric is magic. And I found over time you get so hung up on one thing, like you get really hung up on depth jumps. Depth jumps are great, but they're also very demanding. And they're also, um, they you don't really have the angular motion that you do in like a running two-leg takeoff. And so you are locking yourself out of a little joint variability by getting so hung up on a few things. Okay. Uh, so XO Live, speaking of vertical, vertical ignition, uh, says, what, if any, improvements on vertical ignition in context of a 30-plus-year-old trained team sport basketball athlete would you make? Okay, uh, so just I'll, just I'll just keep this general a little bit to athletes in their 30s. I am one. And the biggest thing is just training volume is is huge. So ply and plyometric volume, uh, lifting volume, all that stuff uh, generally can go down a little bit. I do think the one thing that can be okay is sprint volume uh, relative to say what you were doing in your 20s um, just because I don't think sprinting beats up the joints quite as bad it's it is the fountain of youth moving as fast as humanly possible uh, so I think sprinting is awesome if you can spike up get out on a track and just let it rip uh, that's where it's at whether you're 20 30 or 40 just because again I mean it's it's muscles yes I mean you sprint well you're obviously your muscles are always a little bit at risk at that super high velocity but uh, it's really as you age I think it's the plyometrics that start to take the biggest dip in terms of how many just because uh, joints and fascia and tendons and those types of things you are, you do really want to be careful although uh, as I've learned more about joints and especially like things like the calcaneus and that was one question uh, Jay Flood was asking uh, thanks for that And I've learned this from a Darien bar if you can get that rear foot that calcaneus working like it should all of a sudden all these joint problems that you have especially in the lower legs seem to start going away so if you can learn to move correctly and move right and use joints and, and joint torque properly and you don't have shoes that are like a black hole for your foot sensation you can probably do a lot of the stuff you did do in your 20s but as a general rule of thumb i do believe that taking away a lot of the plyometric volume specifically is important and I also think that we get tempted in our 30s to kind of go what I would call like the Rocky, like the latest Rocky movie was with Stallone. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm not as, what is it? I'm not as fast as I used to be. So now I need to make it up by just being really strong and, and lifting, you know, fake weights and, you know, beer kegs and stuff like that. Uh, but actually, uh, I think it's important to resist that temptation it, because it, that's like the direction you want to go. I'm older. I can still lift good weight, you know, strength. I mean, Fred Hatfield squat is PRO at age 40, so it's cool to lift maximal weight. But I, what I found is in spending too long in the weight room and spending too much time away from, like, jumping things that I love doing, like playing basketball and dunking or high jumping, I spend too much time away from those. It is amazing. Even though I've been lifting a lot, diligent with lifting, it's amazing how much you lose in terms of coordination, some of that tendon tensile strength, uh, like swing leg mechanics, how you set up your joint torques, how you run up, all that stuff will lose fast. And, and it's good to be strong, no doubt about it. But 
really fast sprinting, a minimal dose of plyometrics can have a great impact on your lifting. You can stay very strong uh, without having to push the gas pedal down in your 30s. So, uh, and also just still, still too, and as you get older, you get wiser uh, with all that stuff. Uh, the plyometrics you do do have to have an attitude of maximal force expression to them. So, like it, being that Jay Schrader thing, maximal matters. Um, every every rep has to have a serious intent behind it, and a lot of times. Well, we've done these plyometrics for years, so they can get old, but trying to put like emotion into it, trying to remember those times where you threw down this nasty dunk or you won a jump, you know, track and field jumps competition, or just bringing back some of that nostalgia or just getting a competition going, making it fun, finding ways to do that is really critical. Training with young athletes, those are the things that are important as you get a little bit older. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. All right, next question. So uh, Mimino 2.0 for dunkers, two-foot jumpers. Does slow, steady-paced cardio have place at all in a training regiment? I read your trail run article. If I'm correct, you mostly talk positively about tempo runs, not steady, slow-paced running, maybe doing sprints, plyos, and other fast stuff uh, after the steady-paced running could kill the bad, slow stimulus. Okay, so this is a cool question. It does bring me back because uh, so the trail run uh, article I wrote, if you're not familiar with it, I went out with a buddy of mine. Uh, his name's Paul Cater. Uh, he is a brilliant strength coach. He's based out of Salinas, California. And so I was at his house down there. We kind of went out in the back back trails of Salinas and just went on this interval trail run, just like screaming around these corners and, and, and rough uh, rocks. And, and basically it's like I felt like I was literally like, crammed on my my rear foot or my whole foot was just like cramming into full uh eversion and full inversion on a regular basis so that tilting lateral side to side the frontal plane that if you imagine like an ankle sprain mechanism it, that mechanism going front in inward and outward repeatedly because of this gnarly trail and another cool thing with paul that i really appreciated about him uh other than being just a great training partner but he uh he doesn't like uh he doesn't go out and just run. He you know, you're gonna run off and on a curb, you're gonna run differently, you're gonna run off the grass, you're gonna jump on one leg, you're gonna do nothing's gonna be the same and repetitive. It's gonna be highly variable and there's always you're always gonna be mentally engaged. So a steady state like a road run is death. Like that is death. And I, I wouldn't really recommend it. Uh, some people will anecdotally say I did go for like a two, three mile run. And then after that or the next day or after the run, I actually was warmed up and I could jump higher. Um, sometimes that could be the case if you're a really fascial driven athlete and it's something you do just once in a while. And basically you're just tuning your fascial system. You're just getting a lot of reps that kind of get your fascial system working and tuned up. But I don't think that once you get to a, uh, and I've, I found that, especially when I was younger, actually, thinking about it now, uh, people would say, like, this is when I was, like, 12, 13, people would run a mile for gym class, and they'd be really warmed up, and then they would jump their highest. they tried to touch the basketball net or something, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that really warmed me up. But that makes sense because, you know, 12, 13, 14, we're all fascial-driven. We haven't lifted weights yet. Testosterone hasn't hit. We're not putting on muscle. And so I think it can work from a perspective of, that fascial tuning that the system is in. Anyways, the trail run was beautiful because 
it's 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 training you from a fascial perspective yes but it's also training you from a perspective where your foot is inverting and everting and you're getting you're getting worked in the frontal plane if you're going for it like hard and there's a lot of rocks and ruts and divots and you're running around corners hard and all these things and so you do get a lot of of that just playing like basketball or team sport too no doubt especially if you aren't like you know taping your ankles up and wearing high tops and and you have these shoes that are casts i mean i had a pair of pretty light running shoes on so i was really feeling the ground Uh, i think that was one of the biggest things of it and just just running and you get that variability running upstream in your body huge thing Um, and it's not about the endurance i mean as long as you're not crashing your dopamine you're fine you're not going to turn into a slow twitch monster doing that stuff Uh, as long as it's not like a regular training too as long as you're not doing like four times a week or, or doing it instead of doing the, the typical power work that you should. Uh, but no, trail running is awesome. Oh, I guess so. So specifically, it was asked for two foot jumpers. One or two, I really don't think it matters whatsoever. Um, I mean, I guess maybe one foot would be a little more advantageous, probably because that's a little bit more fascial driven, but there's a lot of fascial driven uh, two foot jumpers out there as well. I would maybe just look to make that trail and not super long. When I did, it was like 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and uh, it was a it was a push, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think 15, 20 minutes, just get after a little bit. All right, next question. Uh, Jones Jeff says, have you ever used power jumpers? And if so, what kind of results did you experience? So I'm assuming the power jumper, the band that goes around your shoulders and straps to your feet. Uh, I have one. I, I use it. I think it's interesting. I don't swear by it. I don't really use it with any of my athletes. Um, I... If I use it, I like the one band more so than the two. The two, I, I think it just throws, it, it does something with the timing or rhythm or the something with the sequencing of the jump that kind of messes it up. If you go from two bands to one band uh, or to zero or two to zero, um, but doing some stuff with the one band and then going and jumping, I, I think there's something to it. I like it. Uh, for me, you know, it's actually fine. I'm thinking about it. Like maybe I will throw that my program here. <laughs> I mean, but it's not to me. It's not magic. Um, I just think it's another tool in the toolbox. I'm usually more concerned about what these days. I'm more concerned about what my feet are doing. Uh, so to me, it's like kind of a distraction at the moment uh, from from those types of things. I'm I'm just kind of getting back to the core of my athleticism. Uh, a lot of work I've been doing with the Darien Bar and just learning how to use my joints properly. So I'm not really into any sort of special training tool at the moment. I'm just trying to refigure out how to use my joints and then once i do that shoot maybe i'll try it again but it's a training tool i don't swear by it i think it can help i i think i prefer to use it in the one band lighter resistance more than heavier is good okay uh next one uh brandon mcknight what are some core principles of your own training what do you always try to keep in your programming sprints plyos weights etc how would you address foot and ankle strength for cutting and change the direction in sport okay so my own training um so it's kind of cool, actually. I'm glad you asked. I uh, So going through this neurotyping stuff, I think I've realized and learned. I, I always caught a lot of flack at work for not uh, doing you know, the kind of the powerlifting type workouts or the mass building powerlifting workouts that my coworkers were often doing. And I, I just knew, like I've done the cube, st- the cube method before powerlifting just to try to get my one rep maxes up and kind of get some old man strength, so to speak. And what I found is that if I train like a powerlifter, I get fatter and I get weaker. Now, it's nothing against powerlifting. It's just not, it doesn't tick with how I operate. I'm an elastic athlete. I need to explode. I need to 
do sprinting and jumping dynamically and, and competitively and push my limit in that to be my best. And that's talking strength to body weight too. So if I, if I do powerlifting and just go for 100 maxes, oh, this athlete did double body weight squat. Well, I need to do that too. So I'm going to do extra squats. That will kill me. Um, I have to jump to be strong. <laughs> uh, I have to sprint as fast as I can competitively to be strong. Uh, that's what gets my system going. Uh, if you talk about like, uh, I think Poliquin had a cool little bit, little bit on nervous system fatigue versus muscular fatigue. And he said, if you really trained your nervous system on the day, at the end of the workout, your hands would be shaking just a little bit. Like they're kind of shaking, like you're really stimulating your nervous system. That's the perfect place you want to be actually, if you're doing a neural day. And you know, it's almost like I forgot what that felt like. I was out, it was sunny. It, it's been a string of kind of just cold, dreary days in California. And so I went out and it was sunny and I, I, um, I did some high jumping and I put my spikes on and I hadn't high jumped in years. And I think a little bit as I was afraid of it because after age 29, I was like, eh, you know, if I can't jump, go out and jump six, eight, I, I don't know if, if I really, this is something I really am excited about, um, you know, at, in my thirties now, but I, I found, I just put my shoes on spikes, just went for it. And after just a little bit of high jumping and some basic plyometrics outside in the sun, I got inside and I kind of had that little shake in my hands. Like my nervous system was so stimulated and that's the stuff that just lights me up. It gets my nervous system crackling. It makes me stronger. Uh, I have to do that stuff. And so anyways, uh, I'll just tell you right now, my, my split right now is, um, Monday and Thursday. I, I get my spikes on, do a little sprinting, uh, Tuesday, <clears throat> Friday, I go do a little bit jumping, triple jump or high jump and, or, or maybe I'll try to dunk a tennis ball or something or, or dunk. I do a 360 with a tennis ball or whatever, or dunk on a low rim just to get some reps in. And, uh, <clears throat> so, and then, uh, the other two days, the, the Wednesday and Saturday, I will do weightlifting and, Oh, I forgot uh, Monday, Thursday. I also do the cleans that pair with the sprinting. So it's hip extension, athletic hip extension, cleans or athletic hip extension. So I do that. And then Wednesday, and Saturday, I'll do heavier weightlifting. So like heavy squat, heavy bench, heavy trap bar deadlift. Try not to think about it too much. Um, I, I've, I've learned that if you're an elastic athlete, you don't need to plan out the latest, greatest weight training scheme. You just need to have a general plan of accumulation, intensification, and realization. Just kind of know where you're going, where the training is going to go. But you don't have to have all these crazy uh, tempos and schemes. It just needs to be really simple. Your body... The, the jumping and sprinting you do is so incredibly complex. That's what the complexity is. And you don't even have to think about it uh, in, in terms of your sub, your hindbrain takes care of all of it. And so that's the general scheme I'm following. Feel really good. I'm actually training. I am training legs six days a week and it's totally fine. I've never, you know, I haven't felt better doing a split in, in quite a while. I feel really good. Um, sometimes I'll go try to long jump uh, down in South Bay uh, with a Darien bar and a training buddy, uh, Kevin. And, uh, it's just a really cool group and, and I like doing that too. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what my training split is right now. Uh, before that I was kind of doing a, a little thing where it was like three days a week, two or three days a week, I was doing a one by 20 kind of deal. And then two or three days a week I was going out and sprinting or jumping, which is fine, but I, I'm realizing more and more that I'm, I'm fully embracing that neural aspect of myself and how I respond. And, and, uh, it, it's, it's funny, like you almost, you read books like Easy Strength, which are amazing and awesome, tremendous books. And it almost made me kind of afraid, a little afraid of, of uh, 
he- heavy weights and those types of things from time to time. But I real I do realize that I do need uh, to. I guess you could look at it like a spectrum. I mean, the Easy Strength was one of the best books I've ever read on on sports performance and and weightlifting. But I, I think I took it too far a little bit in some regards, and and uh, of shying away from some of the heavier and and somewhat lower rep stuff that I needed to really potentiate myself and get my nervous system crackling. And so, anyways, uh, I uh, that's that's what I'm doing these days. So it's been serving me well, and it's just helping give me a good outlook. And for me to be excited about training, I realize this too. For me to really truly be excited about training, I have to be dunking, I have to be high jumping, I have to be long jumping. I have to be throwing javelin. I have to be doing something that my body is really good at doing. I, I don't get that motivated just seeing how much I can clean or seeing how much I can squat uh, or doing things that aren't competitive. So I have to compete to be good, and it's been fun. It's been exciting. Okay, next question. Prince of Persia, how would you train left brain analytical individuals who are smart in theory, schools, but tend to overlook uh overthink, sorry, anxiety, uh, in parentheses, anxiety pressure, uh, to be more athletic and better in team sports. So basically, uh, how do I train someone who's very analytical and then overthinks? And then a, he goes on to say, especially if they are one leg jumpers, do you think these individuals should be trained differently than right brain, right brain people who go off instinct? Thanks. Uh, cool. So a good question. Uh, one thing I'll say a little nuance, and this is where you can see the overthinking a little bit. And no offense here, but you can see it in the question is saying, if you're a one leg jumper, uh, how does this play in? Uh, but again, just kind of talking about the sports specificity, the brain doesn't know the difference. Um, and so, uh, where the mental aspect comes in, it's universal. And, and especially in sport, whether you're a one leg jumper or two leg jumper, or you jump off your hands, uh, if you're overthinking, you're overthinking. And so, uh, what I tend to uh, see, this is where a lot of sports psych comes in. And I think it's easy to say like what the easy answer would say would be, okay, well, uh, put yourselves in, put yourself in a position where you can't think okay so uh like where you have to react and that would be like a chaotic um like chaotic training scenarios like almost like an obstacle course based jumping setup where you have to jump over a variety of obstacles and like let's say i lined up like a bunch of hurdles or or barriers or bars to jump over and i just had to run and, and jump over each one without thinking about it uh that's like that's kind of a basic idea right but Ultimately, I think it takes, um, uh, especially for like a type three on Christian Thibodeau system, it takes a very intentional visualization and meditation routine to learn to silence that voice in your head, so to speak, uh, to let, to kind of learn to tune that out, uh, to focus on your breathing, your body, like your different aspects of your body sensation. And when you get prone to overthink, if you can take yourself back to your breathing, and just clear your head and learn that routine. And, and type threes, I don't know if you're type three or not. I, I'm still trying to figure out. I think there's a lot of all neurotypes who are overthinkers. <laughs> uh, it's not just, um, and, and that's what got, held me back too. I mean, I think I would have been a much better basketball player in high school had I not had the tendency to overthink things. Uh, one of my best plays I'd ever had was when the uh, won the game with a, a 18 foot jumper from the corner with one second left and the only reason I made it to be completely honest is because the play the the coaches drew up a play and I was just told to go in the corner then the ball all of a sudden came to me and I shot it before I could even think about it and goes in and so um I think that you have to mentally prepare yourself uh to shut off your brain and so knowing what you're gonna do you need to 
you know you, you know you have that knowledge and then you you need to spend time meditating visualizing uh and just uh mindful mindfulness tension relaxation is a good one too where you're uh, tensing your muscles as hard as you can then relaxing them getting out of your head getting in your body uh, all these things are important for not overanalyzing and so I say that too like I, there are some people would make a case for overanalyzing and, and I'll give you this little anecdote and maybe I don't know if this makes you more confused but if you're a thinker read both these books uh, so Timothy Galloway a brilliant mind wrote the inner game of tennis which is basically all about getting out of your conscious brain into your hindbrain using feeling, using vision, like see, looking how the ball is spinning or trying to pay attention and be mindful of rhythms and bouncing rhythms when the ball hits and when it hits your racket and those types of things to distract your front brain so you can actually play. Um, but I forget the name of this author, but the, game, the, the book was called Winning Ugly. It's another tennis book, and it was about a guy who was ranked really high, top 10 in the world, I believe, in the 90s. Um, and he was actually the anti-Timothy Galloway. He talked about how he, he would relentlessly study his opponents. He would know their exact weaknesses. He would have a very set plan on how to beat them. And he wasn't a very good player technically. He was very rough in his form, and people would make fun of him. But he knew, he knew the game intimately, and he had this plan of attack. And so... I think like it's like with anything that's it's the answer is kind of somewhere in the middle depends on who you are but obviously if it's to the point where it's really affecting you your conscious thoughts not allowing you to play anymore and I imagine this athlete who eventually wrote that book winning ugly was able to get out of his own brain in terms of his shot execution maybe to some point maybe you could say his form was rough because he was still thinking about everything but he still did really good so um, maybe there's a little bit to be said of each one, but you, no matter who you are, I don't think visualization and meditation and, and mindfulness and tension and relaxation, I don't think those practices would hurt. And for those people, especially like even doing those in between your sets, lifting sets, plyo sets, sprint sets, uh, whatever your court movements, your sport movements are, finding some time in between to do those types of things to bring things back to your body and your breathing could be helpful. Maybe give it a shot. Um, I'm no sports psychologist, but I know what I know, and so I pretty much laid it out there. Uh, good luck to you with that. Okay. Um, oh, next question. Same person, Prince of Persia. How would you help an overtrained, under-recovered athlete to improve while making sure they recover from overreaching? Uh, so uh, stop training. Easy as that. Stop training. Do some meditation. Go take a walk in nature. Uh, just take a make yourself take a break. It's it's easy as that. Um, otherwise, if you think about if you're it's kind of like this polarity thing. Sometimes there's need for a huge polarity uh, in terms of just you know cutting yourself off and then coming back to it. Uh, that's what I would recommend. Okay, uh, so uh, that pretty much does it uh, for the podcast today. I'll take one more question here. I have a few left, but I'm coming right up around that magic one-hour time slot. So let's uh, go ahead and pick one last one, and that is uh, what are some... Uh, I believe this is uh, Jay Gillis. Uh, what are some KPIs that you have found that elite jumpers consistently hit? For example, standing uh, jump height re relative to how tall the athlete is, power clean relative to body weight, 40 meters sprint time, etc. And to follow up for a force jumper, how worth it is it to train for those KPIs? Is there a strong transfer? Uh, okay, so I mean, I know the world of uh, track and field jumps. I can I can give you. Uh, decent KPIs there. I, I know for, you know, it'd be interesting to spend some time around like some of these dunk contests and see what these guys are doing in like a standing triple jump or a squat. 
Um, so in terms of like, I, I know like track, you know, I, and I, I think I just talked about this on a recent podcast, but it was, um, generally you're looking if you're for a, a high level track and field jumper, usually you're looking at a double body weight squat or better. But again, once you get beyond like 2.1, 2.2, I don't think a lot of that strength is really terribly usable or, or hugely important, at least not worth pushing for whatsoever. If it happens, it happens. That's great. Uh, power clean 1.3 to 1.5 is pretty good. Uh, again, beyond that, if you're pushing to hit that higher clean and you're you're doing so in a way that's taking away some torque from your the way your feet operate or you're putting too much muscle on your back, those are little subtle things that I don't think are helping you at all. Um, so, but but those two uh, indicators I think are pretty solid. Uh, I think doing a standing triple jump over 30 feet is good for anybody. If you can do that, that's Solid, obviously, a high-level track jumper is probably going to be over 33, 34, or 35 feet. Uh, I think um, the guy who had the uh, straddle high jump world record, who jumped seven, eight and a half with the straddle, which is unbelievable, I think he got out to 39 feet in the standing triple jump. That's as far as I know. But that is amazing. Like that is that is just ridiculousness personified. That is that is out there. And that, anyways, I I think for like a, if you're talking about like a force jumper, two leg jumping, dunking, I don't know. Maybe someone should come up with some KPIs. I mean, I think the biggest ones, honestly, for that would revolve around like a force jumper is is force is your bread and butter. So squat, front squat max, hex bar, hex bar deadlift max is going to play a, pre, a pretty important role if if that's your game. Uh, you got to move well too, for sure. Your joints have to work well. You have to be somewhat elastic, but. Uh, that's probably the biggest KPI in terms of that and everything else in terms of worrying about. I mean, clean, maybe, but it kind of depends on how you're doing that clean. Uh, you know, a hip, a hip dominant ankle locking clean versus uh, maybe a little more traditional triple extension. I'm not really sure. I wouldn't, I don't necessarily, um, I, that to me, that's a little bit more of a track and field high velocity type uh, type movement. Uh, you think about that squat doctor who was squatting 700 and then could get his uh, get his head up to the rim pretty well. So that was probably a pretty good KPI for him. Uh, but again, if you're an elastic jumper now, then the squat isn't quite as much of a KPI for you. So just totally depends. But good question. Uh, if I had my little sheet in front of me of Boosh Shaders, if you buy some of his, I think he's got a book on the jumps that Complete Track and Field put out a while ago where he has good, great, and elite strength to body weight and like uh, squat and clean. And I think uh, I'm not exactly sure what, what they were, but if you were interested in his take on it, you could probably purchase that and maybe get a better idea and, as well as some of his training schemes. So, all right, well, that's all the time we have for today for this episode. Uh, it's always good to sit down and answer questions. So thank you for everyone who wrote in. If I did not get to your question, I will try to put it in a file for next time I do one of these, I actually got through a lot more of them than I thought. So, hey, I appreciate you listening. Um, don't forget, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, K-Box, uh, free lap timing system, power dots, uh, full full range, uh, force plates, and from all the way uh, all the way up to a force plate, and then back down to things like a power dot. So something for everybody, uh, definitely pay them a visit. They have a great blog as well. And also, if you like the podcast, please don't hesitate. Drop us five stars on iTunes, Stitcher, or your listening platform of choice. We'll be back next week with another great episode.